Hello, hello, and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan, coming to you from Radio 4EB in Nianjin, Brisbane. And today in the show... At the moment, many political donations slip under the threshold and are never disclosed. And those donations that are disclosed can be disclosed up to 18 months after they're first made. A new report shows the political donation scheme needs to be reviewed. We have all the details. Also why experts are concerned about public transport becoming free. And later today... Queensland actually has the most heat-related hospitalizations and deaths of any Australian state. And a key solution is making sure that our housing stock is efficient. Queensland is the only eastern state who hasn't made an agreement with the federal government for energy-efficient housing. What are the consequences of this? We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, a study has found there aren't enough tailored resources available for people with disabilities who are trying to quit smoking. A study from Flinders University and the Cancer Council shows 1 in 4 or 25% of people with disabilities smoke compared to 12.5% for the overall population. National Radio News Director Frank Bonacorso asked professor from the College of Medicine and Public Health from Flinders University, Billy Bonevsky, how concerning the statistics are. That's right, and it's very concerning because tobacco smoking continues to be the leading cause of preventable diseases like heart disease and respiratory diseases, a lot of cancers and diabetes, and so it means that this somewhat already vulnerable population is at increased disadvantage again because of uh, of smoking. What are the factors that contribute to this you know, extraordinary figure, twice as many people smoking as the general population? What are the underlying factors? Well, there's, there's probably a few reasons why smoking rates are so high for people with a disability. One of them is that in many cases, people with a disability experience uh, financial hardship. That might be from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And we know that generally speaking, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds have higher smoking rates. And also for people with disabilities, sometimes there's the influence of those carers around them. And if if they're smoking, then there's a greater chance that the person with the disability will be smoking as well. And then there's um, access to smoking cessation support, so like quit support. People with disability might experience uh, limitations in accessing different types of quit support that would help them quit smoking. While services may be, if not readily available, available in urban and metropolitan areas, um, people with disabilities in regional areas and First Nations uh, uh, people as well, they must, there'd have to be some kind of even more of a limitation uh, for them to access uh, proper remedial services or rehab services in that respect. 
Oh, absolutely. And there is data that shows that there's a geographical variation in smoking rates. So they do tend to be a little bit lower in the cities compared to rural and remote areas. And again, I think that this is linked to limited access to quit support services and and just in uh, you know limited access to health services in general in those areas did your analysis um, take you uh, to case studies were you interviewing uh, subjects on their uh, smoking habits and the difficulty in giving up smoking and if so what are some of those anecdotes and some of the challenges well, we don't have that sort of data. So so what we looked at is purely smoking rates and whole population data and identifying where there are pockets of high smoking rates. And we found that people with disability have you know, twice as high smoking rates as the general population. It's, it's a real problem when you don't have the data to tell you then why is that happening and, you know, uh, what are their experiences in trying to gain some sort of support? Your analysis points to the need for targeted support to develop healthier habits. Can you quantify those that, that targeted support for me? What does it break down to? We know that there are certain types of quit support that are effective. So there's research evidence that shows that these particular quit supports are effective at helping people stop smoking. And those things are behavioural counselling, good behavioural counselling. So whether it's a GP or whether it's going to a health psychologist or even just calling the telephone quit line, which is free for people who smoke... Did your analysis contemplate or countenance the effect that the federal government's ban on uh, vaping would have on um, the ability of people with disabilities to give up the habit? Well, they're two separate things, I suppose, and the restrictions on vaping that the government introduced this year are not complete bans, they're, they're restrictions. So in order to access e-cigarettes for the purpose of quitting smoking, people who smoke need to go and see a GP or a doctor and obtain a, a, a prescription. That was Professor Billy Vanevsky from Flinders University speaking with National Radio News, Frank Banacorso. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. A new report from the Australia Institute is calling for real-time disclosures of political donations. The report shows there are flaws in the current system and it needs to be tightened to make politicians accountable. While the Albanese government has implemented some reforms, it's lagging behind in others. I started asking Director of the Australia Institute's Democracy and Accountability Program, Bill Brown, to explain more about the report. Before the last election, the Australia Institute put out over 40 proposals for ambitious democratic reform, 
And now that we're halfway through this term of government, we wanted to revisit those recommendations and see how much progress had been made. What we find is that the Albanese government and the parliament have made welcome progress, bringing in a national anti-corruption commission, restoring funding to the ABC, and looking into important issues like truth in political advertising. But much more needs to be done, and this year is the last year to do it. And now, what about the Australian Institute's call on disclosing political donations in real time? What's the position of the Institute about that? At the moment, many political donations slip under the threshold and are never disclosed. And those donations that are disclosed can be disclosed up to 18 months after they're first made, long after the original circumstances are passed. What we need is real-time disclosure of donations so we find out who's paying politicians at the same time that major political decisions are made. And we need to tighten the loopholes that allow donations to go unreported at all. And why do you believe political contributions are difficult to track? Australia's political donation laws are a patchwork, with different laws applying at the state and territory level versus the federal level. And laws that were brought in to disclose donations have often ended up muddying the waters further because it's not always clear what a payment is for, even when it's disclosed. What we need is to revise the system and design it around accessibility to the public and journalists so people can make sense of payments as they're coming in. And what are some of the proposals the report uh, suggests to make the government more accountable on these issues? As well as real-time disclosure of donations, we need to lower the donation disclosure threshold so we find out about all cash for access if it occurs. We also need to have details about the diaries that ministers keep. In other words, who's meeting with members of our government and for what purpose. This happens already at the state level, and there's no reason why it couldn't happen at the federal level as well. Along with that, truth in political advertising laws would mean that political claims are subject to scrutiny, uh, and we can no longer have advertising campaigns that mislead the public about important political issues. You were mentioning earlier, a few minutes ago, that the Albanese government is listening and implementing some proposals for accountability. In which areas is the government still lagging on that and they need to work more on, on, the, on that issue? The Albanese government has made a good start at reducing the dependence on consulting firms for government decision-making. But more needs to be done to make sure that government work is done by public servants. We also have the Joint Standing Committee on Electoral Matters recommending truth in political advertising laws and an increase in the number of territory senators from two to four. Because the work's already been done by the committee, these would be easy wins that the Albanese government could pick up and get done in this term of office ahead of the next election. In Australia, it is perfectly legal to lie in a political ad, and it shouldn't be. 
the Albanese government has a model for truth and political advertising laws that could be in place before the next federal election, ensuring that never again do we see an election marred by misleading advertising campaigns. That was author of the Democracy Agenda report from the Australia Institute, Bill Brown. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan in Brisbane. A big hello to our listeners in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM, to our friends in Tari on Tubob Radio, and to the other side of the country to Radio Gulari in Broome, Western Australia. Perth residents have just said farewell to a month of free public transport, but the WA government has decided to keep offering free trips on its local network for school students and on Sundays. Some political parties in other states want to follow suit. But policymakers are concerned this might not be a good solution. The Wire's Matthew Ward-Ages reports. If you're living in Perth, for the last month you've had something the rest of Australia simply hasn't enjoyed. From Christmas Eve up until last Sunday, anyone jumping on the Perth Public Transport Network has enjoyed listening to this sound and not seeing any money taken off their travel card. That trial program was deemed a success by the West Australian Government at the weekend, and it's decided to keep offering free trips for students travelling to and from school, while buses, trains and ferries will be free for everyone in Perth on Sundays. The offer, said Premier Roger Cook, would help ease cost of living pressure and save families up to $500 a year if their kids take public transport to school. Hot on their heels, the Australian Capital Territory's Liberal opposition has said it will offer students, seniors and concession card holders free public transport if it wins government in October this year. But while these policies are being put forward as measures to ease cost of living pressure, not everyone is convinced that free public transport is the way to go. Among them, transport experts. So do they think free fares will boost public transport uptake in the long term? No. It's a simple answer. That's Graham Curry, a professor in transport engineering at Monash University and director of the Public Transport Research Group. He's a leading voice among public transport experts around the world. If we had free public transport, the average estimate is patronage would grow by about 30%. National data on public transport usage stretches back to 1976. That data showed during the pandemic, public transport patronage slumped to record lows. Those levels rebounded last year to 1.3 billion passenger trips. That's about the same number of boardings as Australians were making back in 2007, and well short of the nearly 1.8 billion trips taken before the pandemic. Given that, a 30% increase sounds good. But Curry sees offering free fares as a sugar hit that won't address bigger issues in public mobility. It would be a very expensive thing to do, and the people that would benefit most are people who have very good public transport systems, and they can use it a lot. So these will be the guys living in inner city areas. The people that uh, have difficulty using public transport are the lower income people in the outer suburbs. And they don't have very good public transport. You'd be giving that money to people that are wealthier and better off. 
And it'll cost you quite a lot of money, you know, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. While Western Australia's government points to the more than six million free trips that were taken in its four-week trial, some observers are remaining cautious of its longer-term effectiveness. John Stone is a lecturer in transport planning at Melbourne University. He agrees that people do take up the offer of free trips. But the, the question is, you know, particularly if what you're offering people is free transport on Sundays, where can you go on public transport on a Sunday? You know, I often have been to bus consultations where people say, I'm a senior, I've got my free ticket, but I can't go anywhere. There's no bus. So pricing and service quality, you know, what you're actually getting for your money or what you might get for free is really the question. Instead of making it free, Stone says improving the quality of services provided is a better way to improve public transport in the suburbs. Analysis that he's performed on European cities suggests that running more frequent services leads to better usage. We do need to think about how we fill those gaps and that, that's where the sort of research that I do and the, my colleagues do in, internationally is how do you make the best use of the resources that you've got? And often running a train or a bus more frequently is not a huge cost. You, you double the kilometres, you don't necessarily double your, your costs because you've sunk all the into the vehicle and you might need to employ a new driver and so on. But basically, the marginal cost of extra services, the off-peak and weekends, is is not huge. Stone points out while owning and operating cars can hurt the hip pocket, poorly designed public transport isn't always helpful to those who don't drive or don't own a car. Along with colleagues at the Melbourne Design School, Stone is working with communities in that city's outer western suburbs to pressure policymakers to improve their local bus routes. We've been able to say you could reorganise your existing bus network using the existing kilometres that are there to give your community 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, fast, frequent, direct services. So it's, it's not a matter of cost. It's a matter of the inertia in not actually reorganising these roundabout inefficient bus routes. Free public transport is not a new idea, and several European cities and countries have implemented schemes across their network. But evaluations of these programs are limited. One review undertaken by the EU Commission found that while these schemes have been successful, Programs like these need major investment in new infrastructure to cope with demand and risk losing passengers if service expectations aren't met. To make up for the shortfall from lost ticket revenue, new funding sources are also required, usually in the form of increased tax. Graham Curry says that free travel can also have the unintended outcome of devaluing the service provided. He'd like to see governments turn investment towards making services better and increasing uptake that way. I don't think free fares. I think there's a value to recognising that you should pay for things that create value. And there's a downside of free fares. You know, people stop valuing it if it's just free. And it does cost money to run it. It's expensive and it's worth it, uh, particularly if the service levels are good. That was Professor Graham Curry from Monash University speaking with The Wires, Matthew Ward Ages.
With heat waves and wild weather becoming the norm, houses need to be adapted to become energy-efficient homes. The federal government created the Household Energy Upgrades Fund to create more energy-efficient social housing, and almost all of the state and territory governments have struck partnerships. The only state missing out in the eastern coast is Queensland, who has the record of most hospitalizations from heat-related conditions each year, according to a report. I asked renewable campaigner at the Queensland Conservation Council, Stephanie Gray, what the report entails. So the federal government has a $300 million scheme and it's partnering with the state governments to deliver upgrades to social housing. And those upgrades are either energy efficiency, so things like putting in more efficient electric appliances or insulation, or rooftop solar. So we've seen uh, announcements for all the other states uh, on the eastern seaboard, but not Queensland. And that's an issue because Queensland actually has the most heat-related hospitalizations and deaths of any Australian state. And a key solution to addressing that problem is making sure that our housing stock is efficient and is not too hot or too cold. And so actually Queensland really needs this funding. So why is it important uh, for Queensland, sorry, why is it important for Queensland to lock in this funding for power efficient homes? Yeah, so Queensland, as I mentioned, has the highest amount of hospitalizations and death related to heat waves. So heat waves are really the silent killer, actually, when it comes to extreme weather. And so we need to be making our homes more efficient so they're not so hot. And we also need to be making sure that people are able to use cheap electricity to cool their homes with either fans or air conditioners. And at the moment, a lot of people in Queensland aren't able to access cheap rooftop solar, which actually means that they feel like they can't run the air conditioning or run the fan because it'll cause their electricity bills to go too high. So this funding is really important so that we have energy equality in Queensland, and it's really important for people's health as well. Now, what are some of the programs the Queensland government has to help households to be more energy efficient? So the Queensland government last year announced a um, electric efficient appliance rebate. So people were able to get a rebate for buying more efficient appliances, which would then over time help reduce their electricity costs. Now, unfortunately, that program has now closed, but it had, you know, record uptake and was super popular. So Power Together is calling for more programs like that that can help all households, whether uh, Queenslanders rent or live in social housing or live in their own homes, to be able to upgrade to more efficient technology and also to um, make upgrades around the home for better insulation and things like that. And do you believe that the Queensland government will uh, lock in this funding like uh, as, as soon as they can? We really want to see the Queensland government work with the federal government to lock in an, an agreement as soon as possible so that this, this funding is available to Queenslanders as soon as possible. Um, we don't know when that's going to happen, um, but we want to make sure that Queenslanders are able to remain cool during summer because we've had a lot of really high temperatures. Um, we've had a lot of extreme weather events and we know that we need to address these issues to keep people safe and healthy. Um, and we know also that climate change is only going to make these things 
uh, more frequent and more severe, more heat waves and more extreme weather events. So we really need to get on the front foot and make sure that Queenslanders are protected. And now uh, you were mentioning the analysis show that almost all the eastern states have this agreement. Do we know more about the other states like South Australia, WA, NT, etc.? Yeah, so most of them have done different funding agreements where uh, the states put in a pool of money and so do the federal governments. They make an agreement and what that means is uh, they have funding for both uh, energy efficiency upgrades in social homes, but also they have funding uh, for uh, solar on social housing as well, so a separate stream of funding to help facilitate um, more solar going on those rooftops. That was Renewable Campaigner from the Queensland Conservation Council, Stephanie Gray. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening wherever you're in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and X. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jagara countries where this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. I'm Eduardo Jordan, coming to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. Thanks so much for your company, and we'll see you next time on The Wire. Mm-hmm.